What's up, Salt Company? How are we doing? Um, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, the second half, starting in verse 15. So if you've got a Bible, you can start flipping there. Um, before we get into it tonight, I want to I tell you guys a story actually from yesterday. Okay, So I'm at Kirkwood with my boys, Trevor and Israel. What's up? That's the shout out. Like, I have to give them a shout out every once in a while. Here's this thing that happens. Okay, We're having a discipleship group, and, and I'm, I'm rolling into Kirkwood, and I see this guy sitting with them talking as, as I walk in, okay? And maybe you've actually met a guy like this before. Um, Dudas is from a, a, a religion, we'll say, that believes that Jesus came back to South Korea in 1948, and, and that was the real second coming of Jesus. And listen, there's more. There's not just one God, there's actually two gods. There's a father and a mother. And did you know that actually, also, listen, all humans are, um, we're, we're, we're angels in human bodies and we're preexistent beings. And dude is like, dude's tearing it up, okay? This is what's going on. I'm sitting there kind of scratching my head like, wait, hold on, how many are there, what now? And he's like, no, no, look, right here. Let me flip over here. Okay, no, you got that? Right over here, right? He's doing one of those. You guys ever met a person like that before? Okay, yep. So, so even if you haven't met that particular guy, like, he, he is blasting back and forth through all of the Bible, and, and I can't even, like, I can't even get a word in and be like, actually, no, wait, no, that's not what that, no, okay, you've, you're in another place, that's fine, great, we'll talk about that context, no, okay, I'm, like, running around the conversation trying to catch up with this guy as he's, as he's going Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis, Revelation, all over the place, grabbing these verses and, and in Trevor's words, kind of shoving them down our throat with, with, with this belief system that, um, that because we worship Jesus for, for who the Bible reveals him to be and not who the, this other guy says he was in 1948, that we're, that we're missing him. You ever, you ever been in a situation, maybe even not like that, but a situation where, um, where you got kind of nervous about how to talk about your faith, how to defend your faith? Like a moment where you, you, you were kind of shook, like your confidence your confidence was maybe rattled a little bit. Not, not even necessarily because you were worried about their arguments, but you, you just didn't even know how to, how to talk about your own. Maybe it wasn't somebody like blasting all through the Bible and trying to convince you of something else. Maybe it was just that, that time you were gonna share your faith with your friend. And they kind of, they know you come to Saul and maybe know you, you sort of follow God, but you were gonna actually drop a J-bomb in the conversation, right? You were gonna say, Jesus, I love him, right? You were gonna do something and then you got right up to the edge and you kind of chickened out. You, you kind of pulled back because you weren't sure how the tone of the conversation would change. Like if this relationship was gonna change. There was, there was a moment where you were, you were about to step out in confidence and in faith and, and let's be real, you chickened out. I think for all of us here, any of us that would say that we, we follow Jesus, we actually, you probably have a story of a time you chickened out. Tonight we're, we're talking about confidence. A confidence that, um, that we see in guys like the Apostle Paul, like we see in the early disciples, a confidence that is crazy. I mean, these guys are, are bold when they're standing in the middle of Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was just murdered a few weeks ago, and they're telling people that he's the king. They're getting beaten and chased from town to town and they, they keep sharing about Jesus. They have this confidence that is radical, that's unshakable. I'm, I'm jealous, I'm jealous of their confidence. What is it that gives people like that confidence? 
Or, or think about people in East Asia, right? We, we have friends, I know people personally that are giving their lives to share the gospel with people there. They, they wake up every single day in, in a different language, in a different culture to speak about who Jesus is. Even though the government there, if the government found out what they were doing, they'd be kicked out and, and worse things would happen to their friends and to the believers there. How do you have confidence to go out and do that kind of thing? Like that much confidence is beyond me, even though I can stand on a stage and talk to you guys right now, I don't know if I'm that confident. And maybe tonight you're not a Christian. Maybe tonight you're like, yeah, I don't know why you have that confidence, that doesn't make any sense. How confident are you in, in the things that you're basing your life on? How confident are you in the wager of your soul that if you were to die, the assumptions you've made about the world, the choices that you've made are actually actually worth your eternity? And how do you explain the confidence of, of these people that have, have died for thousands of years with the name of Jesus on their lips and a confidence that couldn't be shaken? Tonight we're gonna try to find out where that kind of confidence comes from and actually how we can, can get it. What, what is the root of a confidence like that, that that could bear fruit in your life, in your relationships? We're going to Ephesians chapter one, verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get you one. We've got those handy-dandy Ephesians scripture journals you could pick up afterwards. Those are sweet, but um, let, let me just read Ephesians 1, verse 15. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Pause there. He, he's saying, okay, for the reason, like the stuff we talked about last week, the reason of, of your faith that's founded on the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, through all history, through all eternity, working for you to be redeemed, working for you to experience the love of God through Jesus, the salvation from your sins. Because I, I know you've responded to those things, you've, you've responded in faith, and that's, that faith is working out in love for people. That's the grounding. And when he says saints there, remember, he's not talking to a special, super spiritual class of people. That's the word that the New Testament uses for Christians. So, so this is his prayer for Christians, Christians in Ephesus, and actually, I think if Paul was praying for us right now, this would be his prayer for us too. Again, at 15, 16 for me. For this reason, because I, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, now what Paul prays for them, he's actually gonna tell us, and we gotta lean in because he, as he unpacks what he's praying, we're actually gonna see the root of our confidence. We're gonna see the source. And, and remember, Ephesus is a city we heard last week that's known for magic, like spiritual darkness and opposition, and this mob at the founding of the church. How can people like that have confidence when they're surrounded by spiritual darkness and hostile people? What would Paul pray to a group of people like that, for a group of people like that? Go verse 17. This is what he says praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What's he praying for here? He's praying that they would know God. Now, he's praying that for Christians, right? Like, he, he's praying that Christians would get to know God more. That kind of makes sense if somebody's not a Christian, you're like, hey, hope you get to know God, right? That would be good for you. But, but why would he spend his effort 
his time before God, praying that they would know God. But before we get even into unpacking that, this is something very important you need to see in this text. Look, look at that verse. He's saying knowing God is a supernatural thing. He's praying that, that the Spirit himself would give them wisdom and knowledge. Knowing God isn't just about knowing facts or, or memorizing verses. Knowing God is actually a relationship and God himself needs to reveal who he is to us. The Spirit isn't opposed to using Bible study. He's not saying like, all right, just hope one day the Spirit kind of conks you on the head with knowledge. He, he's not opposed to us engaging our minds and our hearts, but we have to remember this is a supernatural task. We pray as we study, we pray as we lean in, we pray as we're reading the Bible tonight that, that God would help us to know him more because our God is a self-revealing God. He wants us to know who he is. So in this supernatural task of knowing God, as we're, as we're leaning in and asking God, just help us to know you a little bit more, Paul's gonna unpack a little bit more what, what that means, but, but here's why you need to know it's a supernatural task. My worry is if I told you, okay, knowing God is the route to confidence, here's what might happen. You might take that and go, okay, what I need to do is I need to study harder. I need to know my Bible better. I need to know the arguments that people are using. I need to know how to talk to that dude that believes in the mother God and, and the 1948, whatever's going on there, right? I need, to, I need to hammer every argument and memorize all those major verses so that I can figure out, man, I know God, I have enough of the knowledge. My worry is, and the reason I'm camping on this for a minute is, that would be basing your confidence on your own ability. Basing your confidence on, on being the smartest person in the room. That's an, a shaky foundation because frankly there will always be someone who's, who's heard of another argument. There will always be someone who knows one more thing than you do. If we base our confidence on just us knowing more, on us trying to be smarter alone, our confidence is bound to be shaken. You can't win enough arguments and debate enough people, but you don't have to because God is revealing himself to you. So I'm walking this fine line, right? Like, don't base your confidence on, on knowing enough, but, but knowing God is core and God wants you to know him. Paul, Paul has to explain this difference for us a little bit. He's gonna keep unpacking what that means. He's actually gonna show us three aspects of what he means by knowing God. Three things that are crucial to our confidence. They're gonna be found in verses 18 and 19. I'm gonna read the first part of verse 18. This is what he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Pause there. The eyes of your heart enlightened. Someone say enlightened. enlightened. You've heard of like the enlightenment, right? This time in history when, when learning flourished, all this stuff. The word literally means just like light being shown someplace, right? Like there's, there's a place that's dark and light is shown. It's, it's enlightened. So he's saying the eyes of your heart being enlightened. Knowing God is like light shining in dark places. And when he says heart, he doesn't use it the same way we do, right? He doesn't just mean emotions exactly. He's kind of talking about the seat of who you are. He's talking about your will, your thought life, the, the center of, of who you see yourself to be. So if you're a Christian tonight, there's something that you need. You need the deepest parts of who you believe yourself to be. Like the deepest parts of how you live your life and make decisions. You need those places to be lighted up by the knowledge of God. You need light to shine even more in those places. 
there are dark corners even for all of our lives as believers where, where the knowledge of God needs to penetrate to begin to change us. Now, the, the first aspect of knowing God he gets into is this idea of the hope to which he's called you. Someone say hope. Y'all ever been hopeless before? Okay, here, here's the deal. I was in wrestling in seventh grade. Let's talk about hopeless for a minute, okay? Oh, my word, guys. I was a little bit, you know, young for my class, and so in seventh grade, there were some dudes who had hit puberty and some dudes who had not. Guess which category I was in, right? Now, I was trying my little heart out, okay? I went to every practice. I was working really hard, and, and I, like, I know some of you co-guys that are wrestlers, and I'm very impressed, but I was kind of a little bit pudgy, right? It, this was not good, but I was sweating it out, and I was working so, so, so hard right up until our first match, okay? I even had my hair a little bit shaggy, and my coach is like, hey, you can't do that. He cut my hair with scissors in this janky way so that I could be in the first match, and I was like, I'm in. I'm a wrestler. This is good, okay? First match, right? Here's what happens. Pudgy little dude is going after, going after, and boom, I am on my back. I don't know how. My like arms and legs are somewhere above me, and I'm getting pinned, okay? And my friends are there, and my parents are there, and I'm just, I'm shook. Like, I can't do anything because I'm getting pinned by some other dude who, yeah, he just destroyed me, okay? That was the first match, but you know what? There, there were two matches that day, all right? I got back up. I got back to the mat for my second match. I psyched myself up, right? I've been working so, so hard. Second match, boom, on my back. I'm pinned two times, okay? I've only had two wrestling matches in my entire life. That was both of them, and I'm not looking forward to another one, okay? Do you know why I only had two wrestling matches? Because I quit after that, okay? I was hopeless. Like, I saw the rest of the wrestling season in front of me, and I thought, this is going to be more sweat and more hard work and more me flat on my back with my friends being like, I, I don't know, you can't, like, I'm sorry, dude, right? I, I was completely hopeless. A and if you've ever been in a hopeless spot, you know that, that a lack of hope changes your motivation, right? Like, my, my actions for the future changed whether I believed I'd hope or not. If I'm a hopeless wrestler, I, I started cutting wrestling practice until I stopped altogether. I just stopped showing up. And no one chased me down because I wasn't good, right? No one's like, you gotta come back, bro. No, that didn't happen. If you, if you know you're gonna fail a class, you're probably gonna skip it. You're probably not gonna do the homework. You're just gonna count as a loss and go back. Okay, someone's laughing, sorry. Was that too close to home? It's like a month into the semester, guys. That's, <laughs> oof, so sorry. Okay, listen, listen. If you don't have hope, it's gonna change how you live in the future. And, and the reverse is true. If you have hope, if you have hope in the future, that begins how you, to change how you live now, right? If you actually have a hope that is secure and stable, it begins to change how you live today. He's praying that in knowing God, we would actually know the hope that God has called us to. What, what is that hope? We saw last week that we have a firm, a secure, a, a secure, a guaranteed inheritance. We have an inheritance promised by God and sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have a hope that actually will never let us down. That is like gas in our tank to keep going and keep going after God. No matter how many times we get knocked down, we have a hope that's sure for the future. We have an inheritance. That's the first aspect of knowing God, actually knowing the security of what God has done and how sure his promises are. Second aspect we find, we find in verse 18. I'm gonna read that verse fully for us. 
Again, he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Pause there. That's the second aspect about this knowing God that he's fleshing out for us. Now, we just talked about inheritance, right? This inheritance that we've been given guaranteed, but but this part of the verse isn't talking about our inheritance. Look, Look back at it. It says, what are the riches of his inheritance? Who's this his? Like this, this, this blew my mind the, the whole time I was studying this. this. This caught me off guard. The his is, is God, right? This verse is talking about God's inheritance. Now, now he's using kind of a metaphor, right? He's using a picture to help us understand, but here's, here's what he's saying. God is, is looking forward to something. God actually has a goal and a destination in mind. God has an inheritance he's looking forward to, and it's us. It's his people, it's the people he's redeemed. The, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Listen, the God of the universe is like a kid Christmas morning, looking and, and waiting and longing for all things to be united in Christ so that he can spend eternity with us. We are actually his prize. We are actually the thing that he desires and wants. His glory is shown in his love for us, his people. He doesn't need us. We don't don't deserve being it, but based on his character and who he is, he looks at us and he says, mine. They're mine and I can't wait for them to be in my presence. When we get to, to the end of Revelation, there are incredible pictures of, of the fact that when we were with God, there will be no sun because he will light up every part of our existence. There will be no temple, there will be no churches because God's presence will be close to us. Maybe you think of, of heaven as this abstract place, but, but when God thinks of heaven, he thinks of enjoying his glory with you forever. God is deeply and personally invested in his glory and he wants his glory to be shown in his love for you. The God of the universe is looking forward to his inheritance and that is his people. How is that connected though to this idea of of confidence we have? It's a little bit easier to to see like if, if you have a hope you begin to have more confidence for the future. How is this idea of being God's inheritance, how is that connected to our confidence? Here's the deal, guys. This is identity language that's wrapped all throughout the New Testament. Like, who you really are, God is saying, man, man, this is who I say that you are. It's not based on your friend circle, how many people you can roll up to salt with. It's not based on how many followers you have. It's not based on how much money you think you're gonna make. It's not based on your grades. It's not based on your looks. It's not based on anything you could offer to God as if, as if there was something he needed from you. It's based on his character. The God of the universe looks at you and he says, mine. I love you and I can't wait to spend eternity with you. That's who we are. That, that's some of our identity and that identity begins to give you confidence. When other things in life start to, start to attack your identity, when you begin to, to compare yourself based on these other standards, man, what people might think of me, what will this, I, I tried to share my faith and this person actually started talking badly about me to other people in my class. 
Or, or this person actually stopped inviting me around because they knew I'm a Christian, they knew I wasn't into that anymore. When those, when those things start to take shots at you, and especially on an identity level, Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers and inviting us into the fact that the God of the universe sees you and says, mine, I love you. We, we have a hope that will not shake. We have a value, an identity, a worth set by God at the price of his son. Those are the first two aspects of this prayer of knowing God that give us confidence. Let's look at the third, verse 19. I'll read 19 and 20. And he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him as right hand in the heavenly places. Someone say power. It's not a surprise to say God is powerful, right? Like if, if God is who he is, if you've got any idea of God, it's like, okay, that dude probably has some power, right? He's gonna create some stuff. He's gonna make some stuff happen. God has power. But listen, God's power might not actually be that comforting, right? Just because someone or something is powerful doesn't actually mean it's good. Like if you find a mountain lion in your backyard, you know it's powerful. You know it can hurt you, but that doesn't give you a lot of confidence, right? It gives you pee in your pants, okay? There's a difference between the God of the universe just being powerful and actually what Paul says here. He says his power toward us who believe. He's working his power actually toward us, for us, and for our good. Again, the God of the universe isn't just far away and distant in his power. He's actually close, and he's working his power for our good. The God of the universe that holds all things together by his will, that spoke and created every single thing in existence, that God looks at those who believe and says, I'm for you, and my power is working for you. There's another promise in scripture that kind of summarizes this. Romans 8, 28, it says, we know God works out all things for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God's power is on display in, in all things in existence, working for the good of those who love him. All things. Even the things in life that are actually really difficult. And, and sometimes you can understand that, right? Maybe there's a time in your life where you made a decision on the back end, you saw God's fingerprints on it. Maybe it was like, I applied to these schools and God closed those doors and now I'm here and I'm, I'm learning about God. I'm at school here, I wasn't expecting it. You can see how those rejections led, led to this moment. Maybe it was a job you applied for and actually you got turned down from one job and you got another one and you, you found community. You found friends, you found people that you didn't expect. You can see in those situations how those things would work for our good. And when Paul says good there, He's not saying our our comfort. He's not saying our ease. He's not saying things working out the way that we want all the time. It's God's definition of good. God's power towards us as believers is for a purpose. And his purpose is to make you more like Jesus. Like his purpose through all of eternity and through all of life is actually to shape you and to mold you to be the person he made you to be, a person more and more like Jesus to be free to be a witness to Jesus, to be his image bearer in in the world, to show the world more of what God is like as he shapes you. Now again, there's one level that we can start to understand. 
Maybe you can even look back at some things that were disappointments in your life that led to, led to growth. But there's another level of that that's, that's maybe more difficult. There's real evil and suffering in the world. There's real pain and hurt, and, and, and I know in this room there, there are things that maybe even as I said, God works out all things for your good. Things maybe you're turning over in your mind and you're going, how could God work, how could God work this out? No, no, you, you don't know the pain I've experienced. You don't know the diagnosis that we received. You don't know that night that, that changed me forever. How could God work out things like that for our good? How could we have confidence if there's still suffering and brokenness in the world? How can this lead to confidence? That's a big question. Whole books have been written on that, but, but let me just read a little bit more of what Paul says so we get a taste of the answer. I'm gonna start in 19, I'm gonna read through the end. Again, he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, God's power, toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, and this is the example, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, God, put all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. The justification of God's power, even in a world with, with evil, is, is the cross. Well, what is the most evil event in human history? You might think, man, the Holocaust, right? Or, or, or maybe you're thinking abortion. Maybe you're thinking, maybe you're thinking innocent people dying. Actually, the most evil event in all human history was, was the murder of the one perfect person. Like the one person that, that walked blamelessly and purely on the entire earth and all of the forces of evil and darkness in the entire universe were bent against him. Jesus was completely innocent and he was, he was murdered. Like he was killed for stuff that he didn't do. He, he, it wasn't just for the people that killed him to kill him. They had no good reason, they were, they were jealous, they were petty, they were proud, they were angry. They killed the only innocent person to ever walk this earth. That's evil. But here's the reality, the God of the universe works all things for our good, he actually worked that event, the, the highest point of evil in the world for our good. He could take the murder of Jesus Christ and actually turn it for our salvation. That was his plan the whole time. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't caught off guard. There wasn't an uh-oh moment in heaven when they grabbed Jesus. That was his plan. He was working that event for our good. Our sin, my sin, required the death of the Son of God. My evil and injustice in the world and your sin too required the death of Jesus. And God worked that out for your good. If he can work that for our good, there is nothing in all of existence that he can't redeem. We might not know it this side of eternity, we might not understand how it all fits together, but the confidence that Paul is giving us in God's power is proven in the death and resurrection and reign of Jesus. Paul says all things are under his feet and he is sitting on the throne. Jesus is in command. Jesus reigns. 
It gives us confidence because we know there's someone on the throne that can never be dethroned, that can never be surprised, that can never be thrown off by what happens and he will work his plan for the sake of our hope, for the sake of our identity, the value he has in us, and for the sake of our good forever. How can we have hope in this world? How can we have hope of a sure future? Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne, your hope is secure. There's no twist in the plot coming. There's no end he'll be surprised by. Your hope is secure if you've trusted Jesus. He's on the throne. How do we know that God will love and value us to the end? How can we have confidence that, that his opinion of us won't change? Jesus is on the throne. He is on the throne, the resurrected one, and, and his nail scarred hands prove the value that we have to God. There's nothing you could do to add to that value. There's nothing you could do to take away because he said it, and when he's on the throne, he makes the rules. He says what you're worth, and he bought you at the price of his blood. He's on the throne. How can we have confidence in God's power in a world with with evil, in a world with injustice, in a world with, with harm and sickness? Jesus is on the throne your hurts, your scars, your wounds don't go unnoticed. And he's beginning to work all things in your life to shape you to be more like Jesus. He's working every single thing in existence toward the end of you looking more and more like Jesus. He's on the throne. His power will never be shaken in your life even when things surprise you even when you feel powerless, even when you feel overwhelmed and unsure of what's next, he is not surprised. He's on the throne. Here's the idea I think Paul is trying to drive us through in this prayer that we would know God, know these aspects of who God is. Here's an idea I actually want you to, to remember and reflect for tonight. Christ's reign forever drives our confidence now. Christ's reign forever drives our confidence now. We can know this God that sits on the throne of all existence. We can know him intimately and personally and he actually wants you to know him more. But friend, here's here's a question for you tonight. Is Jesus on the throne in your life? He's on the throne of reality and existence but is he on the throne in your life? Have you surrendered your life and allowed him to be your king? Have you said, okay, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm laying down my arms. I'm not a rebel anymore. I actually, I trust your death and resurrection for me. Or are you holding out? Because if you don't want Jesus to reign in your life, you don't have this confidence we talked about tonight. It's not yours to have if you haven't trusted Jesus. Again, our confidence doesn't come from some abstract thing. It's from a relationship. It's from knowing him. You can have that tonight. He's extending that offer that you would know him. Surrender. Christian, tonight, where where in your life actually do you need some enlightenment in the eyes of your heart? What corner of your life actually needs, needs to be lit up with the knowledge of God? Where has your confidence gotten rocked or shaken And you actually need the truth of God's word to speak in to see Jesus on the throne. Is it that relationship where you're afraid to share the gospel? 
Is it maybe the, the, gain, the, the, the guilt and the shame you have from those times that you haven't been confident and bold? Maybe it is a hope that you actually need to fix your eyes to or seeing his power. Where, where in your life do you need to preach to yourself the truth that Jesus is on the throne? I think one step that we all need to take actually comes right at the end. Paul says that God put all things under Jesus' feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. If you wanna grow in confidence in your faith and knowledge of God, you actually need, you need the church. You actually need to show up with other believers and sing to God and hear from his word. That's such a like, duh, basic thing, right? But, but hear me out, if you wanna grow in your confidence of God, confidence, you need to know who God is. And if you wanna know who God is, he has given you community for that end. Guys, show up on Sunday. Seriously, just do it. Show up and get around other people that, that are in process with God, that are seeing his power at work in their lives. Gain a little confidence by being around them and hearing their stories. Maybe you need to get into connection group. Maybe actually your confidence is shook because you're not around other people that are, that are seeking God too. Other people that, that know who God is, or, or maybe this week at connection group, you need to confess your fears. You need to just speak out the dark corners of your heart that have been hidden and invite other people to, to speak the light of the gospel to you. Jesus is on the throne. And we need to grow in confidence based on that fact. But that's not just for us. Actually, the places God has put you need, need confident Christians. The people in your life need confident Christians. Not arrogant Christians, not proud Christians, not self-assured Christians, but, but people with a confidence that comes from knowing that Jesus is on the throne. People in your life need you to have a confidence that comes from knowing God. Who are the people that God's even bring to mind right now? The, the friends that you could be sharing your hope in Jesus with. The classmates that, that you, you've been too afraid to open your mouth around the family that, that still doesn't understand what's happening in your life, but you're gonna continue to persevere and share the hope that you've received in Jesus. Maybe, maybe actually a lack of confidence has been holding you back in more ways that you've known. But what would happen if we became a group of confident Christians? Like what would happen to, to Coe College or to Kirkwood or to Mount Mercy or to Cornell? What would happen to your, your job and your workplace if there were more confident Christians there? More people that, that knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is on the throne and we lived like that was real. I think more people would get to hear about this incredible hope. I think more people would, would experience actually the supernatural work of, of God showing them who he is through your testimony. I think we would actually begin to see some of the stuff that we saw in the early church. This, this church in Ephesus, surrounded by magic and, and assaulted by a mob, exploding with people coming to know God. I think we begin to see the kinds of things that we've, we've dreamed to see for our families and for the people around us. Not because we learned a new argument, not because we, we beefed up on our debating skills, but because we began to know God. And we knew that Jesus reigns forever. And we let that drive our confidence now. Let me pray that God does that for us tonight as we respond to who he is in worship. Jesus, tonight we, 
we declare you're on the throne because it's true. You are seated at the right hand above all authority. There's, there's nothing in existence that has power over you. There's no one that can stop you. There, there's nothing that can hold you back from doing what you want to do. And you are relentlessly working so that we could know you more. We could know the hope that we have. We can know what it means to be your people. We could see your power at work. Tonight, please give us confidence. Not confidence again in, in ourselves, in our knowledge, in our abilities, but confidence from the fact that you reign. And teach us tonight, please, to respond to the things in life, the, the trials and the struggles, with the truth and the assurance that you are on the throne. Teach us to sing and to worship like people, worshiping you as our king forever. We pray this in your name. Amen.